Greeting Sojourners. Welcome to the June 15th Refresh and Restore podcast, where we are in our third week back into our Jesus overall study of the book of Colossians. The past two weeks, three including today, we've been giving overviews of past sections that have been covered so that we're reminded so that when we dig in beginning back next week in this study we have the appropriate context and so we're almost caught up to where we need to be to finish it's done my heart and my mind good over these past few weeks to dig back into this book of the bible this letter from paul to the church at colossae As I've stated numerous times over the study, Colossians is my favorite book, but there's always a temptation in Bible studies, whether in verbal or written form, to try to get through passages, to move through a section quickly because we have plans, we have agendas, we have schedules. And I'm thankful for this opportunity to get the book of Colossians through me rather than just me teaching through it. And I pray it gets through you as well. Our overview of Colossians 1, 1 through 23, a few weeks back, focused on the supremacy of Christ, who he is, what he has done, and and how he is worthy of all worship, honor, and praise. Our overview of Colossians 1, 24 through chapter 2, verse 7, last week reminded us how following Christ brings suffering like that which he bore on our behalf and how Jesus is the one for whom we should be willing to suffer. Today, we're going to give our final overview section before we dive back into our usual Bible studies. And it's my goal to do for us what Ezra and Nehemiah did when Israel came out of Babylonian exile. It talks to us in Nehemiah 8.8 8 and says, they read from the book clearly and gave the sense. Let's get about that work today. Our first section is Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And here's what the word of the Lord says. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority." The Colossian church faced the danger of false teachers because their knowledge of the word of God was limited. If you remember, this church was not established by Paul, who typically spent more time teaching and discipling the churches he started. It was, but This church was started by a man named Epaphras, who was saved likely in Ephesus, and after being saved, brought the gospel home to Colossae. And this is how the church began. As people heard the gospel and were saved, they gathered around the one who knew more, Epaphras. False teachers saw this limited discipleship, though, as an opportunity to, an opportunity to undermine the Colossians' understanding of the gospel by promoting their own false gospel. Examining how Paul addressed this struggle can 
provide us with protection against similar threats today as Satan and false teachers continue to seek such opportunities in our churches. So let's explore how Paul's message to the Colossian church can safeguard us and our local church communities. The command here is to not be taken captive. And it might seem straightforward, but it's not as simple as it appears. Considering how much evil there is in today's world, the command alone is insufficient to protect people. Just as I wouldn't send my daughter off with a casual warning of avoiding kidnapping, but instead provide extensive guidance and precautionary measures, Paul does the same for the Colossian church. He commands them to guard themselves against being captured and provides a list of specific dangers and captors who are attempting to lead them astray with their false gospels. His list of trustworthy individuals is concise. In fact, it only includes one, the name of Jesus. Before delving into false teachings, it's crucial that we grasp this concept. Rather than focusing on all the details of each false teaching, the key is recognizing that they are not aligned with Jesus. Knowledge of Jesus Christ as presented in the Bible and its teachings is vital for protection against false doctrine. Paul has already emphasized the deity of Christ and his supremacy in the beautiful hymn in Colossians 1, 15-20. Now, through the Holy Spirit, he helps the Colossians discern the danger that exists in their midst. The false teachers appealed to their human logic and reasoning attempting to confuse them with plausible or believable arguments. This is why it's so important to test the teachers, examining whether they are proclaiming the Christ of the Bible or they're arguing against his word. You can find more information about this in 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Use the information there to test, to evaluate those who are teaching to you. As I say that, I want you to know you should evaluate me and what I teach. Because without engaging with the word yourself, you're vulnerable to believe whatever is taught. This is the primary way to ensure we're not captured, to dig into God's word, to test the spirits, test the teachers. The false teachers in Colossae also used empty deceit, making empty promises that exploit their lack of biblical knowledge. Today, Many false teachers are deceiving. Honestly, let's, let's just say it how it is. They're lying under the guise of being faith healers, prosperity gospel preachers, or authors promising health and prosperity within a, quote, Christian context. They are manipulating the vulnerable while lacking true understanding and adherence to Scripture. The Colossian church struggled to distinguish between false promises and the genuine promises of God because they had limited access to sound teachers and the word. They were young in the faith. Uh, their pastor, Epaphras, was young in the faith as well. We, however, are blessed with abundant access to both, and so thus we must be vigilant to not be captured. Human tradition 
can also be potent in the efforts of false teachers because human tradition is effective. It's resistant to change, and it seems, well, religious in cases. Yet it's crucial that we evaluate our sources of information and ensure that they align with the whole Bible, even if we've been doing it for years and years or generations. It's got to align with the Bible rather than relying on opinions or popular beliefs or, as I've said several times here, traditions. We must adopt the attitude of the Bereans in Acts 17. They eagerly received the gospel that was preached, but they diligently examined the scriptures daily to confirm whether or not the message was true. They were moved by Paul's teaching, by Paul's preaching, but they weren't willing to accept it until they had made sure it aligned with the scriptures. Unlike the Colossians, you and I have numerous resources to study and understand God's word. Yet we still fall into deception from time to time because we prefer to listen to false teachers who tell us what we want to hear. We need to strive to rely on God's word and not be captured by those who are telling us familiar things or things that we wish were true. When Paul says elemental spirits here, he's referring back to basic principles or childish beliefs. This goes a level deeper than human tradition. These childish beliefs, uh, elemental spirits, would be like choosing to abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that is similar to returning to preschool immediately after earning your high school diploma. It's foolish. Paul's questioning here why the Colossians, who have died with Christ to these elemental spirits, would continue to submit to regulations as if they were still alive in the world. The gospel requires faith as it deals with unseen matters, matters while elemental spirits can be observed. It's easier to feel the warmth of the sun than comprehend that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. And Satan exploits our desire for tangible proof, leading individuals to worship created things rather than the creator. We must guard against being captured by our desire for finite, our finite human minds to make sense of everything that can only be learned by remaining steadfast in our faith in Christ. These false teachers have employed human logic, empty deceit, human tradition, and appealed to the elemental spirits to deceive the Colossians. We have the privilege of extensive access to the Word of God and various resources to study it. By remaining vigilant, testing all teachings against Scripture and holding fast to the truth, we can be protected from being captured by false doctrines. Our next section comes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And here's what the word of the Lord says. 
in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As I reflect further on this letter to the Colossian church, I'm reminded again of the importance of focusing on Jesus when encountering false teachings. Paul warns them against being swayed by philosophies, empty deceit, human traditions, and elementary principles in our previous section because they are not aligned with Christ. It's a reminder that the Bible challenges us to examine our beliefs and directs us to encounter its author, again, Jesus. It's my prayer through all of the Bible studies we produce that they help us reading it to or listening to it to personally encounter Jesus and grasp the hope found only in him for eternal life. And as it says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, to be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son. Again, Jesus. I had the opportunity a few weeks ago to discuss the gospel with a non-believer who was fully entrenched in a dangerous cult. As we dug into scripture, he was clearly hungry for it, digging through himself and asking questions, yet his family was unwilling to let go, and nor he his family. Rather than embracing the God of the Bible and coming to a knowledge of the truth, he remained blindly allegiant to the works-based gospel and false teachings of the, quote, church he came out of. So discussing how easy it can be for one to get captured by false teaching or to be entrenched in worldly religion is not just a moot subject for me. It's, it's something that I'm, I'm passionate about. You see, this is eternal life or death. And just like this young man, sometimes the religion is not entirely man-made, but based on Old Testament traditions, or in the case of circumcision, traditions that were meant to point to the work of Christ. One example in this section, as I just said, and I must acknowledge the discomfort that can come from discussing this topic, it's circumcision. I hope this discussion will shed some light on the significance of circumcision within the covenant God made with Abraham in the Old Testament while pointing to how it's really foreshadowing the work of Jesus. First, in understanding covenants, throughout the ancient Near East, covenants were sealed in a very solemn, serious, and bloody manner, signifying the commitment of both parties involved. This was often called a covenant of halves because of the bloody nature of the animal being cut in, well, half. 
For the parties making the covenant to walk through the middle of the halves, signifying their agreement. The basic idea here was that whichever party broke the covenant suffered a fate similar to the animal. Yet, there's a fundamental difference here in how God made his covenant with humanity through Abraham. Only he walked through the halves of the sacrificed animals, expressing not only his faithfulness, but his foresight that knowing mankind would inevitably break the covenant. You can check this out more in Genesis chapter 15. Beautiful passage. Circumcision served as a reminder of the costly sacrifice God would make to reconcile people to himself. It wasn't a means of salvation, but rather a painful and poignant symbol pointing to Jesus who would fulfill the covenant and become the ultimate source of salvation, the only source of salvation. However, the Colossian church faced false teachers called Judaizers who claimed that salvation required, oh, absolutely, yes, Jesus is the only way to salvation, but what you really need is Jesus and circumcision, Jesus and sacrifice, Jesus and whatever. They presented Jesus along with adherence to the law, Jesus with observance of festivals. It's crucial to reinforce the truth that salvation is found solely in Jesus and that any addition or alteration to the gospel distorts its message. It's reminded of Paul's words in Galatians 1, anyone who teaches a gospel other than what you have heard from me is let them be accursed, let them be anathema. And adding to, even if it comes from the Old Testament, is alteration. It's a different gospel. The issue can really be understood as a question of equations, which should please my algebra teaching wife. Equation number one, this is the gospel. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But look at the altered equation. Jesus plus anything is nothing. It is the gospel or false gospel. It is what the Bible teaches or Bible plus man, Bible plus religion, Bible plus whatever, and it's not the gospel. It may have seemed like a small thing for these false teachers to add circumcision to the gospel since the practice was prescribed to Israel in the Old Testament. And if you look at the written edition of this, the written version, you'll see lots of cross-references here that'll help you. But the Bible is clear, even in the Old Testament, that there was more to the practice than the removal of a male's foreskin. Look at Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Now, this, of course, is figurative. God isn't removing skin from the heart organ. He's removing the extra, the extraneous, the, the sinful, the human from our hearts and supernaturally giving us hearts of flesh that we can live. Even then, it was really an outward symbol of what God alone could do in hearts. And once Jesus came, it was clear that people were to be set apart by their faith in him. 
And again, in the written version of this, you can find the link there in the podcast notes. There are scriptures here that will point you to this. Again, you should be testing my teaching. And what do you test it by? The word of God. And you have um, some verses here that will help you out. Because you see, this is why Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus alone is the way to salvation. He alone is, as Paul put it to Titus, our great God and Savior. The significance of circumcision, even for Jewish believers, lies in its connection to the covenant with Abraham, but our ultimate focus should be on Jesus and the new covenant that he said on his last supper with his disciples, the new covenant which was in his blood, one that is represented by what we call the Lord's Supper, where we take the bread which is his body. We take the cup, which is his blood, and we are reminded in the sacrifice that Jesus did. When I say which is, I don't mean supernaturally changed to. I mean symbolic of, but you get my point. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the covenant keeper, and we are a part of it by grace through faith in him alone. So we need to recognize, we need to cherish the sufficiency of Jesus and reject all attempts to add to or modify his gospel. There is another, what are, what churches would call ordinances, like we just mentioned the Lord's Supper, that draws a parallel with, with circumcision, and that's baptism. And I want to highlight their roles as outward symbols representing inward faith. According to Romans 6, 4, Baptism symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, proclaiming our faith in him. Through repentance and belief in Jesus, we are saved and experience a spiritual transformation. We are raised from spiritual death to new life in Jesus Christ. And it's essential to understand that salvation is exclusively found in Jesus. Hence, this symbol in any attempt to dilute it or alter it, diminishes its power, changes it fundamentally. Furthermore, this passage brings to light the abundant grace and mercy of God demonstrated through Jesus. In him, we find forgiveness and the cancellation of our debts because of sin. The records of our sin are wiped clean, wiped away through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. We must appreciate the righteousness and justice of God who paid the price for our sins to justify those who have faith in Jesus. As a result, believers are set free from condemnation and live in the freedom and righteousness that Christ provides. This passage also highlights the victory of Jesus over Satan and the rulers and authorities. The nails on the cross symbolize the final defeat of Satan as Jesus disarmed the spiritual forces through his sacrifice. His resurrection abolished death and brought forth life by grace through faith in him. And this truth resonates powerfully here, uh, offering believers a message of triumph and good news. In summary, this particular section delves into the spiritual significance of circumcision, baptism, and the redemptive work of Jesus emphasizes that salvation is found exclusively in Jesus and urges us to reject any attempts to add to or modify the gospel. 
Through Jesus, we experience transformation, forgiveness, and victory over the powers of darkness. It's a testament to the love, grace, and victory of God, offering hope and new life to all who believe in him. May we hold fast to the truth of Jesus' sufficiency and his unparalleled role in our salvation. Our final section for overview today comes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Here's what the word of the Lord says. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This last section emphasizes the importance of understanding the role of the Bible as the guide for Christian practice. We need to believe that the Bible is God's word, as stated in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Our beliefs about the Bible shape the way we interact with it and determine whether we see it as important or merely a valuable influence. A passage that will help with context for this section is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Here's what it says. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your fan former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." That passage in Ephesians 4 distinguishes between knowing Christ and not knowing him, highlighting the difference in one's way of life before and after. It's crucial to recognize that Jesus is at the center of Christianity. If there is no Christ, there is no Christianity. Our practices and beliefs should be centered on him as he is taught in the word of God.
we're advised in this passage also to not let anyone pass judgment on us regarding questions of food, of drink, of festivals, of new moons, of Sabbaths. The false teachers in Colossae, again, were trying to impose Judaism on people, not just with circumcision, but also with dietary laws and observances on the church. These practices were meant to point to Christ, who is the substance. We must be cautious about who it is that gets to prescribe practices to the church. Those practices should be prescribed through the teachings of Jesus Christ in the Bible. We need to ensure, again, God's word is our ultimate guide. The false teachers in Colossae advocated asceticism, the worship of angels and visions, claiming these things to be superior over all others in religious practice. However, Paul emphasizes the important again. If you're thinking this is repetitive, it is. And for good reason. We need to constantly hear the importance of holding fast to the head, holding fast to Jesus Christ, the originator of our faith, and the church which is his body, should follow him. Again, you should see a trend here. Jesus is greater than religion, even when those religious practices are ones that once pointed to him. We need to be continually reminded that if we have died to the old self in the old ways, they no longer need stake in our lives, and especially not in our worship. Seeking after human precepts and teachings that do not bring life is like dabbling with death. The false teacher's practices may seem attractive, they may sound good, but they are of no value in stopping the adult indulgence of the flesh. Only Jesus has the power. His spirit within us gives power over the flesh. And that's what we need. Again, it's essential to have access to the Bible and engage with it and additionally, you need to understand that being part of a local church and having a pastor or shepherd who guides and protects is crucial. That's right. God gave us the church. He gave us the church to belong to, to be a part of, to be a part of his body for a purpose. Gathering with fellow believers and receiving instruction helps protect us from false teachers and deepens our understanding of what it means to be in Christ. Having and engaging with one's faith family, one's church, also adds protection and accountability we need against false teachers who are actively seeking to destroy people. Now, I know these overviews have been a lot, and so especially in these previous sections today, there's been a lot of information but I want us to, to take just a second and break it down into three matters of importance that have been cycled into each section. The first, we have been given everything that can be known about God in the Bible. We must utilize it by reading or listening to it. This is how we hear from God because he has already spoken. Anyone who proclaims that they have a fresh, audible word of God, especially one that presents current information not present in Scripture, he or she is a false teacher. Get away from them. Don't listen to them. The word of God is how we measure whether teachers are teaching truth or whether they're teaching lies. 
in any truth about Jesus apart from the Bible is a lie. Second takeaway, Jesus is not just supreme in the universe. He must be supreme in our faith and our practice. He is who the Bible says he is, and we need to keep him central in our lives. Anyone who's trying to promote a different Jesus than the Bible presents is a false teacher. He or she is dangerous and should be avoided at all costs. Those who promote a false Christ and a false gospel are antichrists and not to be trifled with and largely especially if you're not spending time in the Word of God, do not engage with them. Third and final takeaway, God has made us to be part of the body of Christ here on earth. This is called the church. Yes, the church is the body of Christ worldwide and throughout all of time, everyone who has believed in him, but there are local expressions of this. Church is not a building It's not an event, but it's a people. Our sinful selves and false teachers want us to go rogue. They want us to go solo on this subject, but we must remain vigilant. Jesus often gives the example of his followers being sheep and false teachers being wolves. Understand this, anyone who tries to separate us from the sheepfold, from the church, is a wolf, is a false teacher, and should be treated as such. Y'all, I'm not trying to be an alarmist, but I do want to sound the alarm here. Paul didn't write flippantly about this, and neither do I. It's my prayer that this Bible study will help you to be vigilant and to know Christ. Jesus, who is greater than he who is within the world, is our only hope. Hold fast to him. Thank you, and God bless.